You're listening to Five Things with Lisa Birnbach. Hi, it's Lisa Birnbach. While reading The Last Pirate of New York, the newest book by our guest this week, the journalist Rich Cohen, I realized that we are not the first generation of Americans to say things are terrible. Duh. No one had it easy ever. It's the challenges and how they came about that provide grist for the mill. I often think that if I had been born in an earlier century, I'd have died in a carriage accident thanks to my nearsightedness. And that doesn't even take into account my lack of upper body strength. Yet no matter what I read, I find something disturbing. Is it Iceland losing glaciers as the planet warms and the country predicts all of its glaciers will eventually disappear? Or what about young Greta Thunberg, the 16-year-old Swedish climate activist who is sailing to North America in a small craft with a small crew in order to call attention to the extravagant waste of carbon fuels, among other issues? She is heroic, but people are trashing her. Why are so many people so cruel? She's a kid with a great heart and great communication skills, but still, she's a kid. This is why I decided to find five things that make life better. No matter how anodyne or common, these little markers remind me that not everything is terrible. This week's guest has written a slew of wonderful nonfiction books and was a co-creator of HBO series Vinyl. Rich Cohen is attracted to tough guys and The Last Pirate of New York, A Ghost Ship, A Killer, and The Birth of a Gangster Nation brings great reporting and storytelling talent to a man who is considered the worst monster alive in 1860. And without further ado, my five things. Number one. The new or newish thing our phones and computers can do, which is to give our password to another person, it's almost magic. The person who has the password is asked if they want to share it, and instantly the other person's device is online. I think this may be a feature of Apple. I'm not sure. Preemptively, the negative among us may say, well, our phones are spying on us. Who cares? This trick is a delight. Number two, because so much of our world is now digital and virtual, I've returned to doing crafts by hand. No matter how good or disappointing the outcome, it does feel better to make something real and palpable by hand. And of course, what's better than knitting or doing embroidery or needlepoint or painting or sculpting? Well, doing it while listening to a podcast or a book on tape. That is an hour well spent. Number three, speaking of the real and not the virtual, I would be lost if I didn't carry a notebook with me everywhere. At the moment, it's a small Claire Fontaine notebook, which is easy to stow in any purse, and it's colorful so it's easy to find. I do mishmash my notes for everything in it, so there are pages I don't quite understand anymore, but it's nice to write things down. Those things do stay in my brain a little longer. Number four, Lancome's Listilo Waterproof Eyeliner. I was looking for a new eyeliner that didn't run or disappear, and a salesman at a Sephora called me Miss Thing and told me I had to just buy this one, full stop. I don't wear it every day, but when I do, I'm always surprised that at the end of the night when I'm washing my face, the liner is still where I put it in the morning. And number five, this video of two Canadian women out in the country. 
Watch it and enjoy it. It's a simple pleasure. Okay, a simple pleasure recorded by 21st century technology, but still. And speaking of 21st century technology, for moms, you know the clock watching starts around three. That's about the time your kids get home from school. Are they there? Are they safe? Peace of mind is why parents are adding Blink indoor and outdoor security cameras to their back-to-school shopping list. And right now, you can save up to 20%. Blink cameras are almost like being there when your kids get home. Just moments after they walk through the door, you get an alert on your Blink smartphone app with a video clip. Blink cameras are wire-free and run on two lithium batteries that last up to two years. Setting up your system is so easy, it takes just a few minutes. And they started under $100 with no monthly contracts. And right now, through Labor Day, you can save up to 20% with Blink's back-to-school sale. Thanks to Blink, back-to-school security just got easier. Visit BlinkProtect.com sale. And now, I welcome Rich Cohen to the studio. My guest today is the journalist and author Rich Cohen, author of, most recently, The Last Pirate of New York, A Ghost Ship, A Killer, and the Birth of a Gangster Nation. I have to say, this is a book about a, a real criminal who named Albert Hicks, who was kind of the most famous and most bad of all bad people in 1860. Uh, in New York and the and the Holy Coast, from Providence to New York, right? Right. Actually, my first working title was the Baddest Man. Ah, look at that. Yeah. Because he's terrible. He even saw himself as a monster. But what I I want to say before we even get into the story of Albert Hicks is, I don't read crime books particularly or vi- books with a lot of violence. The violence in this book took my breath away. I sometimes had to put it down and take a cleansing breath, as they say, Rich. <laughs> I I just tore through this book. It is so well told, and it is so grounded in research that, and yet not boring. I mean, it was incredible. I thought it was a, a wonderful book. Thank you. So the story is that this baddest guy Grew up in Rhode Island in 18... He was 42 when this book takes place, right? Yeah, not or... everything's incredibly clear, but he. it seems they grew up in Connecticut. Oh. In Norwich. Oh, right. Which was near... The big city near them was Providence, Rhode Island. Right. And his father, his father was a farmer and had 11 kids. The oldest and the youngest were both sentenced to be executed. So if you're looking for a child-rearing example, that guy probably isn't it. Right, right. And he was, he, uh, uh, Albert, our, well, as you call him, anti-hero, admires his older brother, Simon, who was also a criminal and was a jailbreaker. Right. And moved out west to the natural witness protection program that existed in those days. Well, there was like the frontier. And a lot of these guys in this book, including Isaiah Rinders, who became an important official in New York, he also sort of went out to the frontier, remade himself, disappeared, and came back as Captain Rinders, although he'd never been in the Army or the Navy. He was like one of those old Hollywood studio guys who has a uniform made for himself. Like uh, Georgie Jessel. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> um, one of the things that's amazing about this reporting is that you evidently found somewhere in a library one thinks 
all this newspaper reporting of the crime that happened. And in fact, the the crime being solved so quickly in an era before airplanes, telephones, internet is kind of amazing. Was that part of what drew you to this tale? I was always interested in Albert Hicks because my first book was about Jewish gangsters in Brooklyn in the 1930s called uh, Tough Jews. Those were guys like um, Abe Kidd, Twist Relis, and guys who died in the electric chair. And these, these were stories my father told me when I was a kid in lieu of bedtime stories. <laughs> and I, I grew up outside of Chicago. He grew up in Brooklyn. People would ask me what's his job. I'd say I thought his job was being from Brooklyn because that's seemingly all that he did. <laughs> and um, when I moved to New York to try to be a writer, I just was fat. I wanted to find out if the stories my father told me were true. It's like any kind of legend. Like, is it true? And I kept coming across old gangsters, who some of whom I met, who knew this story of this guy, Albert Hicks, who was like the Paul Bunyan of the New York underworld. He was almost unreal, you know, uh, and it was so long ago. It was right before the Civil War. And he was the scariest guy, they said, in the history of New York. And in the era of gangs, he didn't belong to any gang. Because he was so scary. He didn't need the protection right. of a gang to do his You're in work. a gang to protect you from Albert right. Hicks, basically. And um, I went back and I, was, I tried to write it a couple times before I wrote this book, different times. And finally, a few years ago, I tried again and I, and I really got into the research. And what's fascinating, there's a, a famous book called Gangs in New York by Herbert Asbury that Martin Scorsese made the movie sort of based on. And Albert Hicks is mentioned in that book like in a paragraph or two. And, the, and in the Luke Sant book, he's mentioned like in a paragraph or two. And I went back and researched and found that those recollections were untrue. They had the story completely wrong. And They had the name, but they had the wrong details they had They had that he had committed these crimes, but somehow in some inverted way through years of like telling and telephone, this is a guy who went on an oyster sloop in New York Harbor, wait till it got out near... Coney Island and killed everybody on the ship, took the money and ran. And in the telling of it, it became that he'd been kidnapped for crew. Shanghai was a term because you'd be slipped something in your drink and you'd wake up on a ship and you'd be told work or swim. And in the worst case, you wind up on a trip on a boat for China, you're Shanghai. Mm-hmm. And that he, fighting for his freedom, killed everybody on the ship. But then when you went back and researched it, that's not what happened at all. He was a predator, he was hunting, and he and he was a guy who com- was a lifetime criminal who this is the time he finally got caught, when he was old. He was a pirate, he was the last person publicly executed in New York, he was the last pirate in New York, and he was sort of the first gangster in New York. And I was just fascinated him as kind of the first and last of a type. And the fact is that when this story happened, it was a huge story. And it was covered on the front page of every newspaper, not just in New York, but in the whole country for about four or five months. And um, so for research purposes, it was great. I mean, I found out more about Hicks than I did about, I wrote a book about my own family called Sweet and Low. Uh, and I had more research about Albert Hicks and about my own grandfather, who wow. I knew. You right, know? right. And because that was every newspaper around a story about him. Then you had the police files. And you had letters that were written to his family and to get money. You had letters his wife wrote to her mother. And then you had uh, depositions, court testimony. And then amazingly, though he denied and denied having done this right up till the end, at the very end, when he was trying to make a deal to not go to hell but to go to heaven, he gave this really wild confession about his whole life story. So you put all that together and you have an incredible amount of research to try to recreate not just him, but the criminal world. And what's always been interesting to me as sort of somebody who came from 
the Midwest to New York, who grew up with stories about New York, recreate the New York as it was right when my ancestors got here. The New York that you create is filthy. The New York you create is dirty. The New York that you create is almost like a sideshow, a Coney Island sideshow. At the point at which Albert Hicks is finally in jail, people come and go into the jail, into death row, just to look at him. Yeah. There's there's the sense when, when he was arrested in New England and brought by train to New York, people all along the route already knew right. that this monster was on the train and there were hundreds or maybe thousands of people along the way trying to get a peek at this guy. I mean, news traveled really, really fast in 1860. I don't quite understand that. Well, it was all word of mouth. And you mentioned about there being no, you know, about the police work, because it was one of the first works of modern detectives in New York. And they didn't have any of these things. You know, they didn't have... They didn't have the tools that we are familiar with. Right. And they got lucky and they were great, a great detective who was convinced that he could do it and a newspaper reporter who helped. But it's all part of the same thing, which is it's like a very tactile world. Like you have to get outside and do stuff. And people were starved for entertainment and they went out to see who they considered a monster as he went by on the train. And there was a fear he'd be lynched before he ever got to New York. And people were shocked when they saw him because he was very good looking, he looked like a movie star, you know, and people were upset by it. And they even had his skull studied to see if he was deranged or demented, you know, based on the shape of his skull. And in fact, he had a very well-shaped skull. Like, they never, they couldn't figure him out. And of all the things in that world at the time, it's interesting because all the things we still have, you still have the, it's still the NYPD. It's it's unbelievably similar. Yeah, it's still the same world. It's, it's just like, this is like the the oak tree that lives in your backyard when it's a foot tall. That's how I saw it. This is where it all comes from. And, but the thing that, that most stuck in and became New York was a thing you mentioned, which is the sideshow quality, which is one of his visitors when people came down to gawk at him was P.T. Barnum. I mean, this reads almost like a doctoro, like ragtime, because what P.T. Barnum himself (laughs) shows up. But in this case, it's true. Yeah. and, And think about the city was had many fewer people and they knew each other. And this, and the city was much smaller because where we are now in Midtown was the country. Yes. Right. Fr- uh, Central Park had just been laid out, but it wasn't really finished. And you'd have the weird thing where you'd have, you know, an intersection of like 108th and uh, Broadway in the woods. You know what I mean? <laughs> and like, you said that you could take a train where the train five, 50 yards from the train stop was forest. Yeah. And the trains went right down the middle of the street and people were always being hit by the trains and they didn't have crossings. They had guys from the train company just standing out waving flags saying, get out of the way of the train. It was a dangerous city, too, in that way. And um, but that the P.T. Barnum thing, he had a museum on the corner of Ann Street and Broadway, I think, called the American Museum. And he had Albert Hicks in there. He took his mask of his face. He traded for his clothes, a box of cigars, and he was on display for 10 years as the worst man who ever lived. And then that museum burned down on the anniversary of Albert Hicks's death. And, but in that period of time, hundreds of thousands of people, maybe millions, saw and came to know Albert Hicks, who was very famous for a long time. But what happened is, is the Civil War happened, started just a few months after he was executed. And he was executed on what was then Bedloe's Island, and is now where the Statue of Liberty stands. Mm-hmm. And 20,000 people came out to see him be executed. 
And it was the last public execution because the authorities meant it to be this kind of somber thing that would warn people away from crime. And instead, it became just a huge drunken party. And Isaiah Rinders, who was the federal marshal, who was kind of like a gangster himself and ran a gang called uh, the Dead Rabbits in the, in the Five Points, which was the famous slum, and supposedly won the election by getting repeaters, that is people who vote <laughs> again and again and again, uh-huh. to vote for James Buchanan. And James Buchanan made him federal marshal in New York. He came into possession of this gold mine, which was this very famous criminal. And he hosted this execution, and he sold tickets to the execution, and he rented steamships. And you could get, for $1, you get all you could drink in beer, uh, as many oysters as you could eat, and to see the execution. So it became this huge drunken party. And the last thing that remains of that world in strength to me is the carnival element and the P.T. Barnum element, which is our entire, it's the presidency right now. You know what I mean? It's the entire culture. That's what survives stronger than anything. Well, you said the worst man alive. Yeah. There's a connection. Right. Um, it It is really, when we think about our world being chaotic and messy and rules not working and, and people winking at what's right and what's wrong, it does seem like it's all here. It all happened before. I, you know, the the feeling I had when I read about the dogged reporter from the New York Times and the dogged detective who wasn't even detectives weren't held in higher esteem than policemen. I think even lower esteem right. than policemen. And and you see the the way they retraced Albert's steps all the way up and down the coast. I had to... It, it felt very modern. Yeah. It felt like a movie also. I, I know that you dabble in that world. Right. Has this been option for the movies yet? It's um, so I'm visual. working with uh, so visual. a producer and to try to control it to some extent. Hopefully, it's made into a movie. I mean, the thing about a movie is, I've to me, like a book's better than a movie. Yeah, because and always. Well, because you know, I feel like when you write a movie, you're writing directions for somebody else to tell a story as opposed to telling a story. Mm-hmm. And um, it does it to me like it doesn't. A, a movie needs you need to know everything in a way. And this is a true story, so you, there's a lot of things you don't know. And it's like in the not knowing that makes it interesting because that's where your you, your imagination comes into play. Absolutely. Yeah. Plus, plus there are no there are no compromises. It's the book that you wanted to write. Right. It's not well. Okay, we'll find a way to put Nick Cage in here. Right. Yeah. And there's no twists. I mean, that's why I wanted the murder that he did as gassy as it was right at the beginning of the book not like is there a mystery did he do it didn't he did it he did it it's just a portrait of him and how he comes to accept that he did it and then the way that he faces his death and his story in new york at the time and in a movie all that would be probably rearranged and it would be a surprise and you know and all that's kind of not yeah there's a not truthness to it and what's interesting about it to me is that that it's true and um i do think that what's similar to today and that's why when I see the news and everyone's so shocked all the time about what's going on, if you work on a book like this for three years, you're like, this yeah. is always, I mean, <laughs> yeah. stealing elections. Yeah, that's I nothing. mean, we obviously yeah. we got better and went through that. But in New York in 1860, these guys stole elections. I mean, they had people vote 15, 20 times. And it, it, we thought that was just in Chicago and New Orleans. Yeah. But but um bum <laughs> But really, I mean, it was as corrupt as could be. It was as corrupt as could be. And all you had was a few upstanding people who were determined that they could fight it. And one was this detective um, named Nevins who 
basically you were right, which is the, the, the detectives were almost freelance workers. They got paid per case. They didn't get paid enough to live. And they would you could go back and look at old newspapers and they advertised their services. You could hire them. And so a lot of people, if they were being investigated by a detective, they would hire the detective and the detective would do something like lose a murder weapon or forget a, to show up at an appointment, you know. Uh-huh. And this one guy, with the help of this reporter from the New York Times, when the New York Times was new and still had a... A hyphen. Da- yeah, hyphen. Yeah. Between uh, new and York. Yeah. Not York and Times. Right. Yeah. Uh, they were determined that, that this they could use physical evidence because what was unique about this case is it, almost no murder cases resulted in conviction. Because if you didn't have a body, you couldn't prove murder. And these bodies were at the bottom of the right. river. All they had was four severed fingers and a thumb. And that is pretty gross. Right. And I kept reading, listeners, after I heard about the severed fingers and read about the hair on the railing. I but the hair, kept, the hair is important. The hair is important. The hair becomes physical evidence, whereas yes. they find one of the guys who was killed's fiance, and she has a locket that he's given her. Uh, with his picture and behind his picture is some of his hair. And they're able to take that hair and compare it to the hair from the boat. Exactly. Even though they didn't have DNA, even though they didn't have uh, uh, whatever those uh, isotopes are, right. they were able to match it exactly because right. they got her. Right. And now people would say, well, you know, it's not. It's just based on the appearance of it. But to then it was, then it was good enough. But the, the important thing about it is they still couldn't charge him with murder. Right. They had to charge him with piracy. Let's go back and talk about the term pirate. Okay. Because, yes, Albert Hicks worked in, in seafaring. He was a sailor. He was a, a guy who, in between being a, blood, a cold blooded murderer also could repair a mast and could also was was handy on a ship. Right. He was a very good sailor, which is why he kept getting hired. And he looked very good and he changed his name. And there's no record of him. And the sh- ships were always short of crew. Right. We have an idea of pirates that's based on, you know, Treasure Island. Right. And whatever. Captain and, Kidd right. and so on. But one thing that influences me, a few years ago, I wrote a book called The Fish That Ate the Whale about this guy, Sam Zimmery, who was a banana guy. And I, was, I went to school in New Orleans. So I'm always interested in New Orleans, where Albert Hicks was too. And I was one of the first books I remember reading, like in sixth grade, they said, go pick out a biography. So I picked out a biography of John Lafitte, the pirate. Uh-huh. And well, I went back and looked at him again. Okay. And John Lafitte's interesting to me in a whole bunch of ways. But if you look at what John Lafitte did, because we think of him as a pirate who fought with Andrew Jackson in the Battle of New Orleans, and he did all that. All that's true. And he was a pirate. But what he basically was is a gangster. He operated exactly like John Gotti. The only difference is they were on ships because that's what you were on then. That's you what you were on. Yeah, that yeah. was the mean, that's where all the commerce was. So we have this separation between the gangsters and the pirates. The pirates were gangsters just on, on ships. On, on water, yeah. Right, and there were pirate ships of like blah, 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 but often pirate ships were... British sailors who were attacking Spanish ships were called pirates by the Spanish, privateers by the British. You know, it's based on your definition. What Hicks did is Hicks was like a guy who went out on whaling ships for a be gone for a year and he would stir crews to mutiny, kill the officers of the ship, steal the money and take off and do it again and again and again and again. So it was defined. It was a living. It was a good it was a good and he made some and what he did. There's a crazy thing in the book, which is. At one point, he comes into all this money, and he needs to launder it. So he opens a bowling alley. I know. In Mexico. In Mexico. In a hotel. Who doesn't do that? Right. 
<laughs> and also another really wild thing is they found all these silver bars that were too heavy to carry and they buried them. And they're and still they're there. still there. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it, the whole thing has a lot of craziness in it. Um, um, but uh, one thing that you do also in The Last Pirate, so so basically a pirate, just to close that little part of the discussion, is a gangster on the water. Right. It's a gangster. It's a criminal. It was a term, a much more generalized term for a, a criminal. Right. And it has to be in the open sea beyond the jurisdiction of any local authorities. Oh, well, I meant that. Yeah. No, no, but it's interesting because in New York you had river pirates, too, which were gangsters who were in rowboats attacking ships in the harbor. And that's one of the things Hicks lawyers tried to do was say it was these river pirates. And they were very colorful and they were mostly teenagers who had names like the Swamp Angels and the Daybreak Boys. But honestly, his defense lawyers really tried. Oh, they did a great job. They they, really tried, even though he was the baddest person alive. Right. I was kind of touched by their effort and energy in a funny way, even though what they were doing I didn't approve of. Well, that, that's how the system works, which we're going to give the, you know, it's an adversarial system, which is you pit them against each other and supposedly the jury's going to figure out what the best one is. You're not supposed to find the truth. You're supposed to present your case. And that's really a case where the system really worked, which is he got a good lawyer even though he had no money. Mm-hmm. They, they tried everything. They tried to say this. Shadow of a doubt. Right. You may not, you may think he's a bad guy, but if there's even the littlest bit of doubt, even his, even the prosecutor said it. Right. And the prosecutor's good. The prosecutor said, if you think this guy didn't do this, you got, you owe it to yourself, owe it to your country to let him go. But if you do think he did it, you have to, you have to find him guilty and you have to, he has to be executed. And the judge too. And also it's like, what you see is, so you have this very chaotic city, but you have these very competent people really doing a good job like it really matters. It's hard to believe that amidst all that turmoil and chaos and corruption that a good job could be done and people would be allowed to finish their job and also have their conclusions honored and not called fake news or whatever the equivalent would have been. Right. Um, The thing that drives this book also is that you get inside the head of this killer. You come to a place as he's telling his confessions to a guy in the police station and he's making his way to Jesus with a priest. He tells his story, his whole story from the time he was born on the farm, the sixth of seven boys and so on you get to the point where he starts to enjoy killing. He starts killing. I mean, the killings for which he was executed were hardly the first times he killed people. Right. But you get to a point where at first it's a horrible thing. He can't believe he did. And then he kind of enjoys it. And then it becomes an automatic reaction to a situation where he stirs up, revolt on a boat, gets people angry, starts killing people, jumps ship, and does it again. Right. Tell me about that, because you've written about criminals so many times, or people who were criminal adjacent, or the heads of crime syndicates. How do you find the place in your heart to write about people who are so bad? Well, I mean, the thing is about the killing thing is, because I remember once, I worked on a TV show once, in a writer's room, and they would have people that weren't killers kill people, and I'd be like, that's like a big lie. Like, it's so unimaginable. It's it's So when you're talking about almost people who are 
just completely corrupted souls. You know, not people who in the heat of action or blah, 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 people who have crimes that and Hicks would kill people just so there'd be no witnesses. And he said in the trial, dead men tell no tales or in the confession, which was a, a, an expression I researched and it existed before. But he kind of was one of the people that made it very famous because he said it in such a in a big way. And um, it's a mystery to me, you know, uh, how people can live that life and do the things they do. Even more of a mystery was in the book I wrote about tough Jews, those guys, when the mob would kill somebody, they would often have the person's best friend kill them because that's how they could set somebody up, which is they would person would not be worried they were going to be killed. And there was a gangster named Gangi Cohen in the Catskills who had to kill his best friend who was sitting in a seat behind him and strangled him with a garrot like in The Godfather. Uh. And then the guy had this sudden like little break in the clouds of his brain and said, wait a second, if they had him, me kill him, they'll have someone else kill me. And he ran. And that guy ended up in Hollywood as an extra in movies. Gengi did? Yeah. And that's how the police found him because there was op- all these open warrants. A cop was at the movies and saw him in a crowd scene, I think in the movie Golden Boy, the Clifford Odets movie, in a fight scene. You know, so that's a little bit off off topic, but it, it wow. is like you just don't, you just, these are like Albert Hicks was like a psychopath. And in his confession, the police were there too. And they kept saying, how many people did you kill? And he couldn't remember. He couldn't put a number on it. And they ultimately, when they when the confession came out, they said over 100 because nobody was exactly sure. And it was part of his process and part of the way he, I think he he justified it is when he was young. So this is like his real backstory. When he was young, he ran away from home. He committed a petty crime, which is he ran out of money. He stole some luggage from a train station. He was caught and put in an adult prison where he was brutalized and escaped, caught, brought back. His sentence was doubled and he was put on a chain gang, basically, with a bunch of adults, brutalized again, escaped, caught again, and they put him in solitary confinement because he kept escaping for a year when he was like 17 years old. And he said that he went insane in that period of time and said if he ever got out, he was going to take his revenge on the world. And that's what he did. And I really think that he saw authority figures as the equivalent of the people that put him in the hole. And you'll notice he, ne- he didn't kill, when he would kill the ship, he'd kill the officers and he would just strand the people that worked before the mast, as he said, you know. And um, even later on, one of the things that he almost got caught early on, on a ship to New Orleans, he was a passenger on the ship and the captain tied a cabin boy up and was whipping him against the mast and he went up and killed the captain and cut the kid down and ended up killing a whole bunch of the crew with with another guy so in his mind i think he was fighting against the people who'd put him in the hole when he was a kid i think that's where it came from i i mean that's how he justified it he yeah. was he was doing the righteous work we'll be right back with rich cone but first a commercial are you a mom the clock watching starts around 3 That's about the time your kids get home from school. Are they there? Are they safe? Peace of mind is why parents are adding Blink X-T2 security cameras to their back-to-school shopping list. I wish they had this when my kids were that age. And right now, you can save up to 20%. Blink cameras are almost like being there when your kids get home. Just moments after they walk through the door, you get an alert on your Blink smartphone app with a video clip. And the Blink X-T2 two-way talk feature lets you greet and chat with them from your smartphone. I guess you'd also see which friends they brought home. 
Hmm. Blink cameras are wire-free, set up in minutes, and run on two lithium batteries for up to two years. No monthly contracts right now through Labor Day. You can save up to 20% with Blink's back-to-school sale. Thanks to Blink, back-to-school security just got easier. Visit BlinkProtect.com sale. And we're back with Rich Cohen, the author of The Last Pirate of New York, A Ghost Ship, A Killer, and the Birth of a Gangster Nation. Rich, you immerse yourself in these kind of ugly people, yet you're a dad, you're a husband, you're a nice guy, you're well-dressed. I mean, is there, do people ever comment to you on this universe about which you created quite a career around gangster and criminal tales? You know, yeah. it's not that, you know, everybody who wrote a Western is a saloon owner, right? but it is kind of intense yeah. what you write about. I just think that it's fascinating to me, these people that live absolutely beyond the law of society by their own rules in complete freedom in a way, you know, which is completely terrible. And um, I do think it has something to do with fascination from stories I heard from my father and from this different kind of person. And then probably to some extent, you know, I grew up with those gangster movies and gangster stories like everybody else. And um it's funny because this whole thing happened with Chris Cuomo and Fredo and all that. Mm-hmm. My father always said that I was the Fredo of the family. That's so mean. <laughs> he was kidding, but it was like, you know, I never took it as a... <laughs> <laughs> he would say, your brother, he's like Sonny. He's uh, he's tough, but he's too rash. I'm like, what am I like? He's like, you're like Fredo. you got a good heart. <laughs> <laughs> so to some extent, I think that, you know, um, when, I wrote, when I first wrote Tough Jews... It was like I was really into gangster stories. I was really into my father's story, and I really wanted to tell a gangster story. I was, you know, just work magazine writer. And um, I thought, how can you tell a new gangster story? And I thought, Jewish gangsters, you know, not Meyer Lansky, but the, the tough guys, the guys who were like the torpedoes on the street, guys who died in the electric chair, the guys who were the muscle for Lansky, who people never knew about, especially in Chicago. It was so outside the stereotype of what Jewish people did. You know, so to me, it was like almost a new slant on an old story. And then that story led me to this story, which fascinated me because the underworld is like in New York, especially in Chicago, but really in New York, it's a culture and it's a, and it's got mentors and it's just like a culture. Protégés. Yes. Yeah. What do you think of as today's underworld? Because there's always going to be one, right? Yeah, I mean, somebody once asked me after Tough Jews came out if I was, she would write about the Russian gangsters now were then and my father had been his neighbor. And I'm like, I have a rule, which is I don't write about living gangsters, only dead gangsters. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I think that's pretty wise. You know, so um, I, I don't I don't really, you know, there is all this still going on uh, just as much as it ever did. And there's and the Internet changes everything, of course, because all the stuff about Albert Hicks, which is it was people literally on the docks sharing information, a lot of it wrong. Right. A lot of it fake news in a way, Mm -hmm. which was just gossip. Well, the game of telephone, which you mentioned earlier, things get messed up. Right. And the Internet or Twitter is like the game of telephone Mm -hmm. uh, just on warp speed. Yeah. It's just Mm -hmm. times as high as you can go. So it was all, you know, there. And um I just think that the the underworld now is a lot of it's moved online and it's become all these criminal gangs. It's the whole stuff you saw with the Russians and everything else, which is that's why it's hard to research. It's hard to draw a line from this is the government to this is criminals. It's a mess. 
And then there are places in the internet that most of us don't even know how to find. Right. Right. Like the, the dark web. Yes. Or, right. I don't know. I'm already aging out of all that, you know? Yeah. And it's sort of like, I think it's so confusing and um, it's so much information is just rolling in that you just have to try to live as if to some extent sometimes as if it doesn't exist when when but gangs do exist and gangs most famously the bloods and the crips still exist right right in california i think in new york in, in chicago. chicago yeah yeah that whole world of cabrini green the the um they tore cabrini green down right because yeah. of right. all the shootings right? right i mean the thing about it is that is interesting is a lot of this i realized in tough jews especially it was neighborhood history so they would even ethnic ethnic groups would change every new ethnic group would come in and they would have an underworld because some people just weren't content to wait a generation and hope their kids had better lives and be treated poorly they were just going to take what they wanted now and um they would live in neighborhoods where there had been previous gangsters and they would inherit the history even though it was a different ethnic group hmm. so like abe kid twist relis was Jewish, but his nickname, Kid Twist, came from an earlier gangster who he reminded people of who'd been German, okay? And Dutch Schultz, was, right. was real name was Arthur Flegenheimer, and Dutch Schultz had been a gangster in Harlem a generation before who they just gave him the name because this guy had been tough, you're like that guy. So in a weird way, the, the, the history is the history of the neighborhood, and, and you see a lot of that still in places like Chicago. So in other words, a new a new group moves into town and they're welcomed by whatever's left over of the previous gangster culture or gang culture that was there. Well, basically the most powerful people in the gangs become political leaders. Okay? That's like the guy Isaiah Rinders in the Hicks book. Mm -hmm. That's like um Carmine DeSapio, Tammany Hall, yeah, right, and Big Tim Sullivan, I think it was, and and but for them to be effective, they need young people willing to go out on the street and do the work for them, and that often tends to be people of a different ethnic group. So, an the Irish gangs came into the Lower East Side. I mean, the Irish people came into the Lower East Side in the Five Points. They then, to some extent assimilated, succeeded, moved out to different neighborhoods, but the leaders stayed in those neighborhoods, and now they're, the young people they were working with were Italian and Jewish. So you had these guys left over, the leaders from an earlier generation, so that's the connection. That's why it's always important, because they need young people, they need people with energy, and they need people to basically be on the street. But so, but, but what is the point of them? Is the point... I'm the boss of this neighborhood, and I want every family who owns a house in this neighborhood to pay me $50 a month because I said so. Yeah, but in this case, it's more like, I want all these people to vote for this candidate. I want these people to make sure our entire district goes Democrat, let's say. And I'm going to, in return, get patronage from the political system, which will be money, which I will then use some extent to help the neighborhood by building a new swimming pool or whatever, and enriching myself and taking care of my different people who would take care of me. That's Tammany Hall. That's the system. So that's why Isaiah Rinders gets the vote out 
for James Buchanan, and then he becomes federal marshal, which is honorary, obviously, and it's important in its power, but it also affords all kinds of ways for him to enrich himself and use that money to pay off his people and make himself more and more powerful. So there's a way of, of portraying these gangs or gangsters as people who are doing good. I mean, they're, some of them are motivated by it. I, I read a book about Cabrini Green in which the kids who lived there were were selling drugs, sure, and shooting people, sure, but it was to give money to their mothers. <laughs> well, everybody's doing good in their own mind, usually. There's very few people like Albert Hicks who believe they're doing bad. Right. You know what I mean, Sue? Albert, that's like everybody thinks that they're the good guy, basically, in their own head for one reason or another. And these these sort of neighborhood gangs that I'm talking about, and this is before gangs became modernized uh, in the 1920s and became like the mo- like the more like the mafia, this is big street gangs. They were, you know, created a certain kind of neighborhood stability, and they, to some extent, were organizations that helped people that no one really cared about. So they did do, you know, some good, I would say. I but guess that, they kept their neighborhood intact in a certain way. Yeah, or I gave mean, a, were, a neighborhood a personality or a. Or, or, I don't they know. were fig- the gangsters like a status quo figure. They keep things like they are. You know, so I wrote another. My second book was about a group of relatives of mine who were Jewish partisans in the Second World War, and they're still alive. Some of them, and now they're not. But I, because Tough Jews had come out, was successful, and I remember asking this woman Vitka, who was one of these partisans of Vilna, she's like, you know, we had Jewish gangsters there, and I'm like, and they must have understood what you were doing because they were all about standing up for themselves, mm-hmm. and she's like, no, they they hated us because they were trying to do business. And we were messing up business. Basically, we were bringing attention because they were figures of status quo. They weren't, you know, revolutionary figures. They're bi- they're businessmen, basically. Yeah. The first modern gangs were set up by Arnold Rothstein, who was like a businessman. They were underworld businessmen. You know, um, I'll tell you that Meyer Lansky used to say because Meyer Lansky was in business with the Bronfmans. Uh, oh, really? And so he, he said, was a bootlegger. Yeah. He, and and one and they were rivals with Joseph Kennedy had bootleg trucks and they were all these guys and Meyer Lansky when he was old and living in Miami used to say look this guy's five miles away across the border he's in the Fortune 500 he's on every board everybody loves him I'm five miles this way along the border in the same business and I'm public enemy number one yeah yeah <laughs> right is that fair yeah <laughs> <laughs> well it's fantastic talking to you and I could not recommend your book more highly. I think I have. People probably think I'm a profit participant, but I like to think of myself as um, just an enthusiast. And also we, we've run out of time, but we both contributed to a book coming out soon called The Peanuts Papers. And I wrote about what a nerd I was in third grade. And you wrote about Linus and his his spiritual aspects, which yes. was very, very sweet essay. <laughs> um, and when we do a whole show on the book, maybe you'll come back. I would love it. Yeah, that would be fun. But you have provided us, thankfully, with your list of five things, mm-hmm. and I would love to discuss them with you. All right. So it's hard to first think of five, and then it was hard to think of only five. Right. Exactly. Problem. Let's start with your number one. Okay, jumping off the dock in Maine. When I was a kid, I spent my summers in Wisconsin, and I went back to where I spent my summers, and it wasn't like Wisconsin had been in 1975. Uh-huh. But I went to Maine, and it was like Wisconsin had been in 1975 in my memory. And the best thing is the water is incredibly cold, which I like. It's like Lake Michigan. 
and uh, you can spend a whole day working and it's like you jump it's like a 12 foot jump into the ocean off this dock in Maine and it's like you're you get a second day it's morning all over again very it really does wake you up yeah yeah and how long do you stay in the water when it's that cold uh, for a short a period as I remember a friend of mine from Chicago saying remember when we were kids and we'd swim in Lake Michigan it was so fun we'd come out and our bodies were all blue <laughs> <laughs> so it's like that yeah yeah <laughs> yeah but it's also so beautiful almost everywhere yeah. in Maine yeah yeah okay number two uh, David Lynch's narration of his audiobook, The Big Fish. Uh-huh. I'm not going to imitate it. If you ever heard his voice, he's got a really voice. He's like, and then I, then you go deep and you find the big fish. And it just, <laughs> I can just listen to it for hours and it just entertains the hell out of me. And it's a great book. Uh-huh. Okay. That's great. Number three. Bubble baths. Okay. Any particular kind of uh, soap or bubble soap? Whatever will bubble. Usually I have a, I have a three-year-old, so there's a lot of bubble bath in there. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And, um... It's weird because I only thought of putting this on because Jessica, who I'm married to, was telling a story and she's like, oh, and Rich was, in the, it was taking a bubble bath and a bunch of people started to laugh. And I realized maybe it's weird for an older gentleman, I mean, I'm 51 years old, to be taking bubble baths all the time. But it's just, I remember once when I was a kid, we, for, my fa- for Father's Day, we got my father this electric pump and you put it under the bath. And you plug it in, it blows bubbles up. It like oh, makes really? jets of regular tub. Uh-huh. And he was all excited, and it didn't work. And he was like, "I want my jet bath." And he made me and my brother go in and blow through the tube to create the bubbles. <laughs> <laughs> Your dad sounds a little bit like a what we call the character. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Number four. Uh, right field bleachers, Wrigley Field. Now, when I was a kid, I sat in the left field bleachers of Wrigley Field because the left field bleachers at Wrigley Field, it's changed a little bit because we're more like drinking beer and the right field bleachers were like drinking whiskey. You mm-hmm. know, mm-hmm. It was much more potent. There were much more uh, crazy hecklers and nasty stuff going on. But it's just like the one place you can be where you absolutely don't think about anything but exactly where you are. And if you're a White Sox fan, it's a religion, right? Well, people the White Sox, pretty... this is the Cubs. Oh, Cubs, The sorry. White Sox people hate the Cubs fans because right. the Cubs fans, they have more fans and they have a nicer stadium and, you know, it's whatever. They've been rivals forever because the White Sox started after the Cubs and the White Sox had the famous team getting the 1919 Black Sox were possibly They're, Arnold Rothstein the, back. The jo- Shoeless Joe, right? Shoeless Joe. So, right. um, and the Cubs had the famous thing where they didn't win for 108 years. And then they won a couple of years ago. And they ago. won a couple of years, three years ago. So, yeah. but... Wrigley Field's like this beautiful little red brick gem right in the middle of a neighborhood that'd be like being a stadium in the middle of the West Village or something. Yeah, it's it's weird and it's cool. I mean, it's weird from New York perspective. Right, and there's no parking because you have to take the train there or walk there and it's a special place. Yeah. Number five. Fonzie. I don't know why I was thinking of this lately because uh, I, I was t- I was thinking because I was a huge Happy Days fan growing up. I was talking to some people about this and um, I found an old diary of mine or a journal I had to keep for school. And I was saying, what was I thinking about in third grade? And the thing was, I was so excited because I got to watch Happy Days three times that day because there was I was homesick and there was two re- reruns and then it was Tuesday night, so the new one was on. And Fonzie was like the coolest guy in the world and probably, for all the stuff I'm saying about the basis of my interest in tough guys and gangsters, it's probably really Fonzie. And Fonzie, of course, had a heart of gold. Yes, Fonzie had a heart of gold, which I always think, it's funny because I wrote a book about the Chicago Bears, and Chicago Bears had this crazy coach, Mike Ditka, Mm -hmm. and I was talking to one of his players, and I said, I'm going to meet Ditka tomorrow, and he says, oh, he's going to bust on your ass, he's a harsh, you know, and I said, yeah, but he's harsh, but he's got a heart of gold, (laughs) and he goes, he's no heart of gold. (laughs) It's just like that all the way through. 
Oh, how funny. Yeah. You know, you mentioned the Fonz in your Linus essay. Yeah. I didn't even see... It's see something that? About, yeah. and, you, and you wrote that months ago. And or... by the way, my father knew I was really into Fonzie, and he would say, you know, Fonzie isn't really cool. He went to Yale Drama School. He's just acting cool. And I was like, if you can act cool, yeah. why wouldn't you be cool? By the way, your dad, what was he? He called you Freddo, <laughs> and he wanted you to know that Henry Winkler was a meek Jewish guy who yeah, well, went to Yale Drama School? he wanted me to know that he went, because my father has this thing about Yale. That if you could ever have a kid who went to Yale, which he never did, my my brother-in-law went to Yale. He married in. None of us went to especially good schools. But when my high school nutrier called and said we're doing the guidebook, where did uh, Richard end up going to college? My dad said Yale, and they said, "Well, we have down. We have Tulane, Tulane here. Tulane down." He goes, "No, it's Yale." They said, "We're pretty sure it's Tulane." He goes, "If you're so sure, then why are you even calling?" He goes, "So what are you saying?" He goes, "I'm saying he went to Yale." <laughs> Yes, Mr. Cohen. Yes, Herbie. That'll be fine. <laughs> Speaking of Herbie, your dad, you have a, uh, an Audible original coming out in the fall. Yeah, I think it's coming out in October, and it's about this epic battle I had with my father. It's my when I, uh, f- I think when I truly became a man, more than my bar mitzvah, and uh, it's it's about me and him and Tulane, and it's called uh, Herbie. And will you be reading it? I read it, yeah. Oh, cool. Was that fun? It was fun, except what happens when you read stuff, because I've done it with my books, is you discover that words that you've been saying your whole life, you've been mispronouncing your whole life, and you suddenly think of all the times you've embarrassed yourself without realizing it. And it's hard to read. If it's the, I would yeah, have used was, different words if I had known I was going to perform a book. And not only that, you know, you naturally change stuff as you're reading, and they insist you stick, rig, which is why. I never really understand why. I mean, there's there's no rule about it. Like when you're talking, it's a little different. But I knew it was only going to be audio um, because it's only audio. And it caused me to write it a little different. It was kind of liberating in that way. Hmm, cool. Rich, it was really delightful talking to you. You too. I've always wanted to be here doing this. Well, we're glad you were. <laughs> Let me just wrap things up and say you've been listening to Five Things That Make Life Better with Lisa Birnbach. That's me. My guest this week has been Rich Cohn, author of The Last Pirate of New York, A Ghost Ship, A Killer, and The Birth of a Gangster Nation, published in June, this past June, by Penguin Random House, Spiegel and Grau. I, I can't say it. I'll say it one more time. I couldn't put the book down, okay? That's all I can say about it. But you can follow Rich on Twitter at richcohn 2003 or at his website, authorrichcone.com. You can subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play Music, YouTube, and get this, iHeartRadio, or wherever you get your podcasts. Every week when we add a new host for our podcast, I think, is there even another place you could get a podcast, like from your kitchen sink? But anyway, my blog is at lisabernbach.com, where you'll find links and photos to all the things we spoke about here today. This podcast is produced in New York City by thefieldtv.com. My engineer is Jimmy Regan. My team is Espresso Arucci, Michael Port, and Sam Haft. Until next week, stay cool and act natural. Bye-bye. That was Five Things with Lisa Bernbach. New episodes every Friday, if she remembers. <laughs>